Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message. I like the countdown clock. I want somebody one week to just shout Happy New Year or something. Good morning. Uh, my name's Ray. I go to church here. Pastor Adam is suffering for Jesus in Orange County, California. Uh, in fact, what you should do is take out your phone right now because it's three hours earlier. And you should text him and say, good luck at the Anaheim Vineyard today. Um, the Vineyard USA, which uh, comprises like, I don't know, 700 or so churches, um, is having their, uh, it's every other year. I don't know what you call that. I guess you call it every other year. Bi-annual? Bi-annual. Biannual. Thank you. You learn a lot coming to this place. Uh, they're having their biannual convention, so uh, Heather and Adam, and also you see um, Andrew Ward and his wife Sarah floating around, but they're going to like go Zoom to an airport. Uh, they're going to be there for that big meeting. But uh, Adam is leading worship at uh, the Mothership, the big vineyard in Anaheim, uh, this morning. So you should text him and say, no pressure, but you know, you're... You're leading worship on the stage where John Wimber preached. And, you know, that ought to help him relax. So, you know, do that. Uh, In fact, uh, Jesus, would you just be with Adam and Heather? uh, And uh, would you just bless them in every way, both with your presence uh, and as husband and wife uh, and uh, as beloved pillars in our community? In your name, amen. Uh, You can go to vineyardusa.org. Uh, and live stream because uh, Adam is also the uh, kickoff speaker on uh, Monday night. Now, we can bug him because it's 6.30 in the morning now for him, uh, but he doesn't speak till like 7 p.m. on Monday night, which is like 10 p.m. for us or something. But you can live stream at uh, vineyardusa.org. Um, so we uh, both pray for him now, pray for him in the future, and we wish him well. Hello. How are you guys? All right. <laughs> Yeah, so um, everybody doing all right? I'm so excited to have the chance to be able to share with the home team, the peeps. Um, and, uh, and I put that on Facebook, and then one of my dear friends said, well, it looks like we'll get to the restaurant at about 2 o'clock. Um, and, and I thought to myself, yeah, that's the 9 a.m. service. You'll get to the restaurant by about 2 o'clock. And the 11 a.m. service, you know, I hope they ate a good breakfast because, you know, they won't get to a restaurant till supper time. Um, see, I've already wasted 10 minutes and I've just said hello. <laughs> right? Well, and I haven't even said anything other than we love Adam. I mean, that's worthwhile. But, you know, other than that, haven't done anything. Uh, Trace and Christina, do you have like a first-time visitor? Is Your baby was here last week? Third time. Okay. I was out of town. Good one. As you can see, I have my finger on the pastoral pulse. Well, okay. All right. So there we go. Uh, Jesus hit me. All right. Here we go. The last two series that we've done here at the Vineyard. Can anyone remember like just the, the, the big series? What have been the last two series that we've done at the Vineyard? Coming home. And that was like five weeks long. And the one before that? Well, it was Philippians, wasn't it? Or did we kind of do that one off and on? But I think it was Philippians. Uh, I don't know. I'm 61. The, the mind is going. Um, I want you to know that, first of all, if you've missed any of those, uh, the, uh, the audio archive, the podcast is really beneficial. And I recommend both series, uh, absolutely, uh, because in uh, distinctly different ways, they're very countercultural and uh, I keep getting this sense that to be followers of Jesus is more and more being increasingly called to be countercultural, not because we're contrarian, but because the kingdom of God culture cuts across the cultures of every age and every time and every civilization. And the more that, that, uh, uh, the more that our world goes, its inevitable trajectory or direction, I see how our kingdom um, 
has done that. So uh, those have been the last two series is Philippians, which is a letter from prison. Largely, it's a letter about passion and suffering, uh, but also of uh, being centered in Jesus through that suffering. And then coming home, especially Adam's last two messages, when he talked about that our invitation is not only to come home and to join the party, but it's also to become like the father. And then Adam made that sound so appealing by saying, yeah, it's an invitation to enjoy heartache and pain and that the people you love will take your stuff and run away with it and waste it, you know? It's like, yes, that's what I want to be. But he's right. I mean, that's part of the invitation to become like our Heavenly Father. Uh, and then, you know, on top of that, we get the, the thrill of being forgiving and, you know, and welcoming people, even though we might want to strangle them, right? So those are countercultural in... in uh, in our society today. So this is just a um, kind of a one-off message, but uh, both of those uh, series that Pastor Adam's done have, uh, have really gotten me thinking a, a bit about uh, how does our call to be followers of Jesus uh, call us to run against the grain of our society, to swim upstream from the current and so that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, somebody asked me uh, in the pre-prayer, hey, what are you talking about today? I said, I'm going to talk about weakness and suffering. And she went, oh, well, you know, I guess I'll see you later. Um, so the good news is, is I'm here to talk about weakness and suffering. Um, no, for real. For real. Yeah, so uh, the first thing I'm going to do is I want to tell you about and and maybe even... Just read it so I get it right about a dream that I had some years ago. Um, and uh, so it's just a dream. I don't claim anything more for it than that it was a dream, right? But, uh, but I want to give it to you. So here we go. You can relax, close your eyes, fall asleep, uh, or I'm going to just tell you about the dream. So in a dream, I found myself traveling with the Apostle Paul. I joined him one morning and we walked a dirt road heading to some town not mentioned in the Bible. And I had so many questions for the Apostle Paul. What did he mean by work out your own salvation in fear and trembling? How could he and Barnabas have decided to go their separate ways when it was so clear that they complemented each other perfectly? Uh, why did Paul still bother with those crazy people at Corinth? He, he, he must have written them three or four letters in total. Uh, that, and that's after he had been their pastor for 18 months. Uh, in fact, in the dream, my list of questions was endless. And in my dream, the Apostle Paul's patience was not endless for those questions. <laughs> so our, our destination was too far for a single day's walk. And we made camp by a stream just off of the road. We, we got together sticks for a small fire against the coming chill of the night. We ate day-old bread, beef jerky, and we found some figs nearby. Uh, and in the last light of the day, the Apostle Paul walked down to the stream to wash. And he removed his outer garment and he stepped into the water knee-deep. And through the twilight, I looked at his bare back. And it was crisscrossed with scars from the Roman lash. He had been beaten more than once. His flesh had healed again and again with new skin, pale and tender, stretched across old wounds. His wrists bore the mark of manacles, harshly tightened from the nights that he had spent chained to prison walls. And I had not noticed it until the slanting shadows of the, of the sunset and the light bathed his body, but the back of his bald skull was not smooth like other men's. It was dented from the stones that had been thrown at him by angry mobs. His legs were still strong from a life of constant travel. His calves were lean and tight, just above the place where he had been chained to Roman soldiers who had been sent in shifts to chain themselves to him during the times that he was under house arrest. His body was a map of suffering. It was an indicator of how this man had fulfilled whatever was lacking in the Lord's afflictions. And I didn't realize I had been staring. And as he turned from the stream, he saw that I had been watching. And he walked up to his bedroll and he pulled the tunic back over his head. Good night, disciple, he said. Are you still sure you want to be a servant of Christ? And he turned over and fell asleep. And that's when I woke up. 
This is this guy that has written so much to us about what it means to follow Jesus. And, you know, it's just my imagination. I, I can't claim any special authority or prophetic insight other than the fact that there's so much of Paul's story that is not recorded for us in the book of Acts. Sometimes he'll give us a summary list of things uh, that he went through. This is the servant of God. This is perhaps, almost certainly, one of the greatest people who has ever lived. And then I want to contrast that dream that I had with a little tidbit that's actual from history. Uh, In that Roman Empire, um, when a conquering Roman general would return to the city of Rome, he would return and there would be a procession of all of the the, the, the spoils and the booty that he had brought back from uh, wherever he had conquered. And uh, there would be a procession and this huge parade and people would cheer for him. But it was always assigned to one slave to ride on the general's chariot and to whisper in his ear, you too are mortal. Just to make sure that the general didn't get like this exalted opinion of himself. Um, but I wondered... You know, and I tried to visualize like this parade and even the, the, uh, the, the slave trying to keep the Roman general from engaging in hubris. Um, but I always wondered, well, whose job was it to whisper to the crowd? This is not the kind of leader you're looking for. The conquering military hero. Who whispers to the crowd? This isn't really what you need or what you're looking for. And, uh, and I thought about this. We, we prefer our leaders to be strong. Um, we want them to be bold. We want them to be visionary. We want them to be the kind of people that, by gum, I could follow them, you know. Uh, we want Tony Stark. Um, if he's not physically strong, he's rich and he's smart and he's funny. And it's like, man, I, I want to be like him. We want Indiana Jones. Um, we don't normally want Harry Potter to be our leader. Um, I mean, Harry Potter gets consigned as a kid's book, right? And, uh, and I even asked, I asked a teenager, I said, what do you like about Harry Potter? And she told me, well, he's humble, you know, but yeah, we want a strong leader. Uh, we want Katniss Everdeen, someone who can shoot straight, someone that runs fast. And even if she's conflicted or flawed in any sort of way, she's still strong She's still really decisive. Those are the kind of leaders that we want. Um, And we have this powerful tendency in our culture to look back in history and remember people through the lens of what we value. In other words, we recast our leaders. So Abraham Lincoln, as an example, 16th president, he saved the union, right? He suffered from depression and melancholy. He, he suffered the death of children. Uh, my son, who's a history teacher, gave me this little tidbit earlier this week that uh, on the very night that he got the news about the Battle of Antietam, he had lost a son due to illness in that swamp that was called Washington, D.C. And he went out to his son's graveside and he wept for hours. You have to imagine Abraham Lincoln one security guard when the United States, north and south, has lost so many young people and he's crying at the grave of his son and he's feeling the pain of what every parent must have felt. But we don't remember him that way. We remember him as tall. We remember him as charismatic. We remember him as the guy who always had something to say and his words just flowed out, right? We recast our leaders sometimes based on the things that we value. And so I wanted to give you a picture of Jesus that I think we've recast Jesus in some ways as that leader. Go ahead, Jonathan. This, here's the Jesus that we want to follow. You know, you know, never mind that this Jesus probably was also on steroids. <laughs> This is the Jesus that we want to follow. The Jesus who has the strength 
of body as well as character and the power to even break the cross. And yet the truth is, is that we're called to a cruciform kind of life, but this is the kind of cruciform life that if we're honest with ourselves, you know, this is what we want. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, This, you know, that's the kind of Jesus we want is a kick butt Jesus. Aren't you glad we're in church? Because if I were having coffee with somebody, I would use a different phrase. Um, uh, actually, I have the other phrase in my notes, but I thought I better not do that because, um, yeah, what can I say? So today, swimming against the current, going across the grain, I want to talk about weakness. I want to talk about suffering. I want to talk about the Apostle Paul. I want to talk about the Lord Jesus And I want to talk about us, me, and y'all. There you go. It's my obligatory northerner using the word y'all for today. So let's uh, let's look at this passage. It's from 2 Corinthians. Um, Paul had had an ongoing relationship. You know this about the folks in Corinth. He took off his apostle hat and he put on the pastor hat. He was in that city for 18 months. I mean, he not only established that church, he not only did the work of an apostle, he became Pastor Paul. And then just like the father in the Coming Home series, when he went away, again and again and again, the people of Corinth would, would, after Paul was gone, go, you know, honestly, he wasn't all that impressive. And they'd have other apostles come through, super apostles, people who had, you know, podcasts and television ministries and internet empires, and, uh, and he would write back to them. And they, he had actually, it was a real correspondence, probably three or four different letters. Um, and this is out of uh, First Corinthians, or sorry, sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 12. And um, he's comparing himself to the kind of people that the Corinthian church admires. And they're saying, yeah, that guy, Paul, yeah, not so much. And now these new guys we got, they're something. And these guys, they're they're good. And starting in chapter 11, and I really recommend that you would actually read 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 and 13. Homework. Um, and, And Paul starts in on this most unusual kind of boasting, both about his Jewish heritage and about the things that he suffered on the road. Uh, it's in fact an amazing list of what he suffered on the road. But then in chapter 12, he says, if I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I'd be telling the truth. Uh, But I won't do it, even though he just did. I mean, Paul probably invented the humble brag, right? (laughs) Because he's already spent the entire chapter and he he, uses air quotes. I must be mad to be doing this or, you know, God knows I'm a fool for doing this. But, you know, he's still boasting, right? Um, uh, But I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. Even though I've received such wonderful revelations from God earlier in this passage, he's even talked about the fact that he had been somehow, who knows, trance, vision, teleportation, who knows, caught up into the heavens and seen things that were not lawful for him to tell. So by the way, if some traveling teacher tells you that they've had revelations that are so amazing, I always recommend that you keep in mind that Paul had surpassing revelations that he said, yeah, I think I'll just keep them to myself. But he did say, I had them, right? I've seen and received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. If that won't mess with your theology, I don't know what will. And notice it's in a passive construction. I was given. Really? Who gave it to him? I I have a really good answer. I don't know. Right? I mean, I've read a lot of opinions. but Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. 
That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So Holy Spirit, you inspired Paul to write that. And I ask that you would inspire me to speak and us to hear what you have for us today. I ask that in this room right now, you would release gifts of faith, that you would light fires of, of passion to understand the Christian life. In your name we pray. So some time ago, three or four days, five or six days, can't remember now, um, I began to ask myself, do I really believe that God's power is made perfect in weakness? Let me invite you to ask yourself that question. Do we really believe that God's power is made perfect in weakness? And then I had to conclude, nope, I act as if God's power is perfected by my preparation, my smarts, my wit, my productivity, my success, the fact that I can deliver the goods. That's how God's power is made perfect, is he empowers me, and then I take it as a stewardship. He's saying, dress this up, make it sound good. He empowers me, I take it as a stewardship, and I go out there and I extend the kingdom for him. I mean, do I really believe that God's power is perfected in my weaknesses? Now, let's not do audience participation. (laughs) But take a minute and just think about your weaknesses. Think about those things that trouble even you about yourself. The kinds of things that maybe you don't even want to share with your spouse. You would not share with your best friend and OMG, you don't want anybody else to know about. That I don't merely mean sin, although I mean sin, I mean weaknesses. I mean flaws. Uh, you, You don't live for as long as I've lived without seeing that there's certain habit patterns in our lives. Uh, My wife can confirm this, but I I will tease with people and say my number one strategy for dealing with conflict is avoidance. And then when people go, really? And then I go, yeah, and it works really well for me. You know, I've never met a problem that I can't run away from (laughs) or ignore or pretend that doesn't happen. And you understand that's not necessarily sinful, but I've just seen that now as a habit in my life, right? And my wife, by the way, has exactly the complimentary skill. She's, she's really good at difficult conversations. She, she doesn't enjoy them or look for them, but if something difficult needs to be brought up, she can do it. And she can do it because she values a relationship or she values uh, truth or honesty. She values those things. Um, that means that uh, she's tormented me for 32 years. <laughs> there she is. Sorry. No, I don't mean that. I, I mean that where I want to avoid, she's willing to, to pay the tuition to embrace the problem, to find peace on the other end, right? Um, so when I invite us to reflect on our weaknesses, I'm, this is not the preacher man saying, you sinful worms. I'm, I'm inviting you, if you have any self-awareness at all, to just think about... you. You know, you could be 16 and, and, and still have learned a little bit about life and say, you know, okay, these are my go-to behaviors, my go-to preferences. You know, this is part of who I am. Um, I act as if God's power is perfected by my strength, by my preparation, by my smarts, the strength, well, the strength of my arm, if, if I could... Pay no attention to this hand. And there's my 21-inch guns, you know. You know, you know, or, you know, by, you know, my Brad Pitt-like good looks. Um, you know, these, you know, this is how God's power is perfected. Um, now, you understand that when Paul wrote those words, that part of exactly what he said was Jesus told him, my grace is all you need. 
and one of the observations that I wrote down so I wouldn't forget it is the degree to which I think his power... No, I'm going to start again. That's why I wrote it down. The degree which I do not think his power is perfected in weakness is the degree to which I misjudge God's grace in my life. Yeah, I wrote it, I wrote it down because I'm old and, you know, feeble now. But I'm going to repeat it because I, I think it's that important. The degree to which I do not think that his power is perfected in weakness is the degree to which I misjudge his grace. And usually in me, my case, that's a lot, right? So I went to sleep the other night with this, you know, my grace is all you need passage in my mind. And I considered whether I really do see my weaknesses as an avenue for God to display his strength. This is a crazy way to run a railroad. It runs counter to our culture. Can you, can you feel it? Can you hear it? Yeah. And I concluded that I'm more comfortable, far more comfortable with my own success and strength than his grace being perfected. But it's madness. It, it is the seed, uh, what they used to say in, in the Matrix, it is the, 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 the worm in your brain, you know, that will end up providing guilt and fr- frustration. It will lead to a life of constant striving. What's the result of thinking God's power is perfected by my preparation? Or, and, and again, we can dress it up, stewardship, responsibility, all the, the degree to which we think God's power is perfected by my response is the degree of which we set ourselves up for a life of constant striving. And who's up for constant strife? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, You know, in the chapter and a half before the passage we read, Paul boasts of his accomplishments, which actually turn out to be an astonishing list of hardships. Uh, The book of Acts reflects that he was in a shipwreck one time, and that was on his way to Rome near the end of the book. But when he writes this, he actually says, no, 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 I've been shipwrecked three times. That we don't even get those three in the book of Acts. I've been at sea for a, a, a night and a day. So, you know, go ahead and let your fears just play with that one. On a piece of driftwood, and, you, you know, it's, it's not like in Titanic. You, you don't get, you know, the beautiful soundtrack. He was at sea for a night and a day, not knowing how it would turn out. How would it turn out? He said that he was in danger in the city. He was in danger in the country. He was in danger from his countrymen, the Jews. And he was in danger from the civil authorities, the Romans. He was in danger from thieves. He was in danger constantly wherever he went. That's quite the list of accomplishments. It's, they are, as well, the marks of an apostle. Big plans for ministry? And I, we should. But what are the marks of an apostle? I guarantee you it's more than a five-page feature in Charisma magazine. The marks of an apostle are sometimes not what we expect. Now, we recast Jesus as, you know, this roid rage, tear the cross apart kind of guy. It's amazing to me how much we don't see in the scriptures that we train ourselves to ignore. So I was astounded that five times in the gospels, and there's only four gospels, five times Jesus says the one who seeks to save his life will lose it but the one who loses his life for my sake and the kingdom will find it five times. But didn't I get saved so I could save my life? I mean, really, that was the appeal for which I'm eternally grateful that brought me into God's kingdom. Hell's a terrible place. You don't want to burn forever. Save yourself now. Get saved. It's even part of, at least in the southeast United States, our terminology, get saved. Right? And isn't it kind of weird that Jesus says, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it? And maybe what we should be doing is to say, you know, I remember the day that I got lost. I lost my life into the life of Christ. Because that's how we find the life that Jesus has for us. Um, And then there's this one. It's in my notes. Is it okay if I 
I, I can't back out now. Go ahead, John. Uh, it's the slide number three. Paul was talking to this Corinthian church that he knew and loved so well. They're good people. And he says, why are you guys suing one another? Even to have such lawsuits with one another is a sign of defeat. Why not just accept injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? What did the pastor talk about at church today? Here was his very encouraging message. Just let yourself be cheated and let it go. (laughs) That ought to help with church growth, don't you think? But isn't that amazing? In fact, uh, in preparation, part of what I discovered was that all of 1 Corinthians and all of 2 Corinthians has this theme and sub-theme of weakness and of total yielding. Um, And I can tell you, as a baby boomer and as a guy that grew up during, you know, the rising economic tide lifts all ships and it's the land of opportunity. By the way, those things are true. I still believe them. But it, it affected my thinking so much it would be like, well, a defeat, you know, that's no way to run a railroad, right? So thanks, John. Um, so I wanted to go through three ways. That was the introduction. So I can promise you we'll be done before two, but not much. It's 10.05, by the way, if you didn't already know. It's right there. Um, Let me give you three ways in which we neutralize this message that is just like a thread that runs its way all through 1 Corinthians, all through 2 Corinthians, five times in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, excuse me, and time and time again throughout the scriptures. Let me give you three ways that we tend to neutralize this message. And the first is, I've already referred to it, is that we drink deep of our culture because our culture rewards those on top without examining their character. Our culture rewards people who are on top without examining their character. And so we want to be like them. Hashtag winning. (laughs) Right? In the immortal words of that great social prophet, DJ Khaled, all I do is win, win, win. And I I actually researched the guy, and as best I can tell, all he ever does is invite other rappers to do the music, and he says his name at the beginning of the video and at the end, DJ Khaled! And then, you know, like other rappers do all the work, and at the end he goes, DJ Khaled! (laughs) He makes them. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little bit of a fool here, but... Oh, okay. No, I mean, I, got, I, I, I did the research and actually I had to send my son a text. You know, is this guy still a thing or is this a hopelessly out-of-date reference? And he wrote back and said, I'm sorry to tell you that he's still a thing. You know, right? But this is what we admire. All I do is win, 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 right? So can I tell you something? And this is, this is from Paul earlier in this passage in Corinthians When we're overly impressed by power or wealth, we will easily accept the foolishness of this world and mistake that foolishness for the work of God. Here's how you know that a preacher thinks what he's saying is important. He repeats it. When we are overly impressed with the power or wealth of the world, we will easily accept the foolishness of this world, mistaking it for the work of God. But I'm here to tell you, I mean, I'm like literally here to tell you, success is not the evidence of God's work. The fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of God's work. There are poor people who live with love, joy, peace, and the other six that I can never fully memorize, right? It's, it's Galatians 5. There, there are people who are destitute all over the world who experience the fruit of the Spirit. And can I tell you, too, that there are rich people who experience the fruit of the Spirit. There was a man, he's deceased now, he was a pillar in our community. I'm talking about Jerry Bennett. And he owned a business. He, his success on the world's stage um, 
caused him to be able to employ lots of people. But if you had been around Jerry for any length of time, what you were impressed with was that he manifested the fruit of the Spirit. He wasn't perfect. He could even sometimes be difficult to work for because he has his own, own ideas about how things went. But if there was one thing that characterized him, it was the fruit of the Spirit. Success is not the evidence of God at work. The fruit of the Spirit is. That's the first thing. When we drink deep of the culture, we will mistake what success is. Rich or poor, we can manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Right? Number two, we tend... We tend to cover up our ambition with gratitude, with the religious language of thankfulness. We can be a ruthless business person, a ruthless physical competitor. We could be killer social Darwinists in our relationships. And at the end of the day, give thanks to God for his goodness to us. And what we've done is we put religious clothing on it. You know, like I wore my... One of my best T-shirts because I wanted to impress you today, right? Uh, eh, no, not so impressed, right? But do you understand the powerful tendency of religious people to dress up their actions with religious language after the fact without ever having examined the motivations or the methods that furthered their life? Do you, do you get that? Yeah. Blessed. Another hashtag. Hashtag blessed. Good. I'm going to need you to give me the third hashtag. Thank you for the second one. Yeah, hashtag winning. Hashtag blessed. Good. Um, do you remember Jesus talks about two people that go to pray at the temple? And one of them, a Pharisee, starts his prayer like this. I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I have. Do you understand, though, that that prayer starts with thank you? And then it ends up with, and I thank you, I'm not even like that loser of a tax collector over there. Meanwhile, the tax collector beats his breast and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, the Heavenly Father is not after us denigrating ourselves. He just wants us to have a clear view of who we are. Because that way lies freedom. The other way lies striving and madness. Make sense? Okay. So we drink deep of our culture. We embrace foolishness. We cover up our ambition with religious language like gratitude. The third one is we rush ahead to the resurrection because we know how the story ends. Okay. So here's the cruciform life. Uh, We got it in Philippians, which is why I mentioned that series. And that is that Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But instead, he lowered himself. He emptied. He emptied himself, becoming a human. No, beyond becoming a human, uh, he became a slave. And beyond becoming a slave, he suffered death. No, not just death, but crucifixion. And the theologians call that a cruciform life. Now, I I always get frustrated with some theologians because I go, the cruciform life is not the full explanation of what Jesus is. He was resurrected. He is resurrected. He lives forevermore. And I'm really glad about that. So let me just, you know, show those credentials. He's a risen Lord. But the challenge for us in this swimming in this countercultural way is that we want to rush ahead to the resurrection because we already know how the story ends. So God's asking us to do something hard and we go, well, of course, but I know there's resurrection on the other side. In fact, we actually want God to do his part before we've performed our part. See, it was Jesus's obedience that led him to the cross. I'm going to give you my opinion, um, substantiated by absolutely no one. I think Jesus went to the cross in faith without the assurance of resurrection other than the fact that his father had told him so. Right? Do you know how many people that I sit with or, or I do Skype with uh, uh, that, that they say, I want to know for sure and then fill in the blank. 
his presence. I want to know that I know his will. I want to know, I want to know, I want to know. And what we're doing is we're saying we want the resurrection before we've gone through the crucifixion. But our Lord and our example says, this ought to be in the Bible. If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him or her take up their cross and follow me. And you see, the problem with death is that you can't see beyond it. We, we have assurances. We have the promises of the Father. Uh, it is, we just lost a loved one just weeks ago in our, in our family. And it is, a, it is a huge comfort, but it is still a promise from God. To the degree that we live in the promises of God, through, by the way, Peter says, through which you become partakers in the divine nature. So the promises of God are pretty darned important, right? But the truth is, is that we don't know. And I think Jesus went to the cross with the promise of resurrection from the Father. And I think he got that promise of resurrection by reading the Old Testament. I don't think Jesus said, huh, 97 more days before the crucifixion, 100 days until the resurrection, and then I get back home. That's just my opinion. I think what he did, he did in faith because he's our model. I, I think that he... He knew the Father's heart. He knew the Father's promise. But that doesn't mean it was easy for him. So, three ways that we resist weakness. We drink deep of our culture and it skews our judgment. We cover up our ambition with religious language. We rush ahead to the resurrection because we know how the story ends. So, um, I'm an old guy. I'm actually rounding into the end of this message. No way. Um, I'm an old guy. Uh, In the 70s, uh, there was a really popular book. I I don't see many people reading it or carrying it anymore. By Hannah Hernard. Hind's Feet in High Places. Yeah, and by the way, it's it's from the Psalms. He gives me the, the feet of a hind, you know, one of those animals that can jump from, you know, the craggy rocks to the craggy rocks. He gives me hind's feet in the high places, um, which is a beautiful image. But the heroine's name is Much Afraid. That, it's, a, it's an extended allegory. The heroine is Much Afraid. Do you know that many of the things that drive us in life is because we are much afraid? Our frustration, our anger, our fears, Much Afraid. Much Afraid is given two guides, the most unlikely guides you can imagine. Do you know those guides? Sorrow and suffering. And it hurts when she takes their hand, but they're leading her to the high places of her father. It's a beautiful allegory. Um, if I had been really ambitious, I would have reread the book from, you know, like 35 years ago, but I didn't, All right? And thank goodness for Google, so I'd get all the names right. Or at least I think I did. I once called an actor Clarence Thomas. So I, I can get these things wrong. Yeah, okay. So there's this beautiful poem. Go ahead, John, slide four. Uh, there's this beautiful poem that's in the book. And um, I recommend it to you. And in case you're tired of listening to me, you can read the poem. But nature gives us this example. Water always seeks the lowest place. Water is life. Water is life-giving. Water always seeks the lowest place. But the amazing thing about water is that when it finds the lowest place, a miracle happens. What happens when water finally rests in the lowest place? It disappears. It evaporates. But it's a miracle. It's water. It flows. It's subject to gravity. And then all of a sudden it goes away and gravity has no effect on it whatsoever. That thing which finds the lowest place is freed from the reality of gravity. And it it finds this exalted position where? In the heavens. And then even more amazing, the story of water doesn't end there. Because then it gathers itself together and it lowers itself again. 
if this isn't an image for the Christian life, I don't know what is. Seeking the lowest place, seeking the lowest place, seeking the lowest place, only to be exalted into the heavens so that you can gather together again and then be sent to the lowest place. And where the water goes, it brings life, life that comes from the heavens. So can we take that? Can we take that lesson that from the heavens, it falls again to the earth, back to the world, watering others, giving life and dying again. Yeah. So um, here would be some homework. And the fifth slide. Here would be some homework. Spend some time in both of the Corinthian letters and look for the theme of weakness and suffering. Um, Don't show me your suffering card and say, I suffered for Jesus. It was 1979. I did it. Done. Right? Look for the theme of suffering for Jesus. And here would be the homework. God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. The call to follow Jesus is a call to run counter to the kingdoms of this world and to embrace the kingdom of the, the eternal kingdom, the only lasting kingdom, the kingdom that will be forever. And I'm telling you, it's not an upside down kingdom. We are an upside down people who need to be set right. When we say the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom, we're judging it by our standards. Wouldn't it be amazing if one day we woke up and we had found we'd been standing on our head all of our life, <laughs> Right? And then we get turned right side up. Yeah? So there's your homework. Would be to ask Jesus, Lord, in how many ways? Boy, you know, I must be done or close to done with the message. I just closed my laptop. Jesus, in how many ways do I consider important the things of this world? How How does the validation of the world fulfill me? You see... The father is not anti-wealth and he's not pro-poverty. He just runs counter to our world. There are good people, I'm sorry, there are wealthy people who are entrapped and enslaved by the world's notion of success. There are poor people who are entrapped and enslaved by the world's notion of success. And there are poor people who are free to flow in God's kingdom. And there are poor people who are not free. Rich or poor, we are the Lord's. Strong or weak. Let me say it this way, since Paul messed with it, messenger of Satan sent to me. Healthy or sick, we are God's representative. What if in our illness, we are still God's man or woman at the hospital? And I got to see this firsthand with my dear mother-in-law just a few weeks ago in this eight weeks before she died, she was praying for talking to and encouraging everyone at the hospital. She didn't look so good. She was ill. She was ill unto death. And even there, she was God's woman talking to people, sharing the love of Jesus, encouraging them. So it's not just about wealth or poverty. It's about sickness or health. It's about respect or disrespect. Do you know some of the most maligned people in our culture may be the most Christ-like in our culture if we can just ask God for the wisdom to see it. Is that right? Okay, so who's on the ministry team today? Here they are. They're popping up all over the room. They're sprinting to their positions because they're so excited. (laughs) Hey, Beth, you did a great job in uh, Shrek. You have a very lovely singing voice. Shouldn't we see Beth more like, you know, as a vocalist on the stage? No pressure. Let's have a a church meeting. All those in favor? No. No, okay, look. 
All right, so this is Vineyard Liturgy, right? Here's Vineyard Liturgy. And that is that we want to respond to the word of God, right? And these people uh, are people that we've trained uh, to make sure that their ministry would be a source of blessing and not a source of cursing, uh, to be able to help draw you closer to Jesus. And maybe there's something that the message addressed today that you feel a need to respond to. Well, one way to respond is as soon as I pray the magic shaman words and announce us dismissed, would be to come up and pray with these people. Um, uh, Or maybe there's a need that you came with that wasn't addressed, either by the worship or by the message. But don't go home without that need addressed. That's what our ministry team is for. Okay? Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray God's blessing over us, and then we'll be dismissed. Jesus, you're so good to us. You're so kind. You're so thoughtful. You've showed us the way of life. And amazingly, Jesus, you empower us in the way of life. And we ask together for the grace to receive the true power for kingdom living and for the true strength that comes through recognizing our weakness and receiving your grace. Now, I ask your blessing on every man and every woman, every child. I ask that your peace would fall on each person. I ask, Lord, for your presence to fill their bodies with every breath. Grace to you and peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Mass has ended. Go in peace. God be with you. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.